Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we're talking about world championships, all things worlds. We had the individual time trial this past weekend with Filippo Ghana beating Wout van Aert in a pretty thrilling duel of what I think are the two uh, most exciting and talented riders in professional cycling. Setting was also great, very beautiful. Uh, landscape of Flanders, going into Bruges with great crowds. You don't always get that at Worlds. So that was great to see. Talk about Ellen Van Dyke winning the women's time trial as well, as well as a brief mini preview of the upcoming road race championships this weekend. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. So if you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's also a paid edition. It comes out every day during Grand Tours, breaks down every stage, as well as breaking down stages for every other major race, comes out minimum trice weekly during non-Grand Tour weeks, and comes with discounts to select brands like Stages Cycling, FastCat Coaching, Curé of Switzerland. You can get power meters, head units, training plans, clothing, all discounted in one place. So if you want to access those deals, as well as the additional newsletters, sign up at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, so first things first, World Championships time trial this past weekend, Filippo Ghana beat Wout Van Aert. It was a great race. Uh, standalone time trials are a tough sell. Not not always the most exciting thing, but this race was was really interesting. It was a good course, um, flat course, which also can tend to be boring. A lot of times at World Champs, you just see complete blowouts in the time trial. Um, I mean, even just going back to the last few years, it just the the margin for the winner has been like a minute plus, which is really not exciting to watch. And, and, and in past years, it's, it's been a lot of specialists, which to me, you know, I, I respect those guys who can time trial as well as they do. It's really impressive, like the Bert, Bert Gash, Bert Gosh, I think he won in like 2008. I mean, he's, he's, he's an extreme specialist, like that's all he's going to do. But at this race, I mean, we saw Wout Van Aert, who's, who's not, I, w- I would argue, not a, even a time trialist. He's just an amazing bike rider who also happens to be able to time trial very well against Philippe Ogana, who, who potentially is, is maybe a bit, of a, a bit of a specialist. He's very good at time trials. I think potentially one of the best time trialists of all time, at least in big events. But he, he wins mass start road races. He won a stage at the Giro d'Italia. He won a stage at, at Etoile de Bessege, I believe, this year, earlier this year. Uh, he's, a good, he's a good racer. I mean, I think he could be potentially a Grand Tour contender. Even that sound might sound crazy because he's so big, but he's also a very good climber. And these guys are just so talented. It is it's hard to overstate the level of talent we're seeing in time trials currently. And we had Remco Evenepoel in third, I believe 46, 44 seconds behind Ghana, the winner. Um, that that's even pretty close. I mean, he you could you could easily see that there was two riders above the rest, Ghana and Van Aert. Van Aert loses by six seconds to Ghana. Those two were the best, clearly. Um, Evan Apol, though, in third place, I mean, 44 seconds is not far behind in a, what, 43-kilometer time trial should should be an hour effort. These guys did it in 47 minutes, which is completely insane. We'll talk about these high average speeds as well. But Ev- even Evan Apol, um, super talented rider, certainly not just a time trial specialist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he wins, you know, he wins many road races that are not time trials. Um, Casper Askren in fourth. He's won Tour of Flanders this year. Uh, certainly not a specialist. That that's a great result for him. He'll be gutted to miss the podium. That's a, to miss the podium at a World Championships by two seconds is must be awful. But that's a good result for him. He's not you know he's not a time trial specialist. He's not. I would not even say he's one of the world's elite time trialists. For reference, he was finished. He finishes around I believe like sixth to tenth at most like Tour de France TTs. So. 
uh, he, he's got to be pretty pleased with that result and shows that he's in great, great shape for the, for the upcoming road race. Stefan Kuhn, you'd say he's maybe more of a specialist. He's fifth. Tony Martin, sixth. Stefan Bissinger, specialist. He's in seventh. Ethan Hader, we'll talk about him for a little bit. Um, super, super talented British rider. Definitely not a specialist in eighth. He uh, just got beat by Wout Van Aert at the recent Tour of Britain on the final day, if you remember. Eduardo Effini, bit of a specialist in ninth. Tade Bagachar in tenth, almost two minutes back. That's still pretty good for Bagacha, though, on a flat course. Um, obviously, he's a very light rider, very small guy as a two-time Tour de France winner and probably the best climber in the world, at least when he's fit. So that's a pretty good result for him. Shows, though, that he's not probably not in peak fitness and I doubt, I do not think we'll be winning the upcoming road race. First things first, though, let's talk about the duel between Ghana and Wout van Aert. Uh, Wout van Aert went out before Ghana and was really blitzing the early part of the course. Uh, I was really shocked at how aggressively he was going to the corners. I mean, uh, the corner before the first time check, he's going into that thing at like 34, 35 miles an hour. That is insanely fast to be turning a time trial bike that just shows he's really carving these things up and trying to get as much time as he can. He actually almost crashed coming out of that. He locked up his rear brake. Had to correct it, but he's a good enough bike handler. That's not a problem for him. Uh, he's ahead of Ghana on the first two time checks. Uh, and he looks, he just visibly looks to be hammering and going faster than Ghana. Ghana kind of has this like loping style. He just pushes a massive gear. Um, I didn't catch his gear ratio. But I wouldn't be shocked if his front chain ring was like 58, which is huge. That is a massive front chain ring. Probably like 58, 12, 15, 13, just chugging that gear. I mean, these guys are going on the flats. They averaged, Felipe Ghana for the, for the race averages 54.3 kilometers an hour. So that means when he, and that's counting, he's starting from a stop, and that's with corners where you're going slower. So that means on the flats, on the straights, he's going close to 60 kilometers an hour. That's up there towards 40 miles an hour. So these guys are holding just massively high speeds, almost incomprehensible to do that. If you just try to go out on your bike today and hold 40 miles an hour on a flat by yourself, you can't do it. Um, th these speeds are, are completely, completely ridiculous. But Ghana, to his credit, does not panic. Um, he goes through the first, as I said, first two time checks down on Wout Van Aert, but he knows that the final part of the course is, is quite flat and quite straight, which is great for him because he can push this massive gear and his top end speed is higher than Wout Van Aert. Um, probably one of the only people in the world to have, a, I mean, literally, probably the only person in the world to have a higher flat, straight, top-end speed than Wout Van Aert. And he just, he times this thing perfectly, paces this thing perfectly, comes through six, 5.5 seconds up on Van Aert, which means he did the final 10K about seven and a half seconds faster than Van Aert, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot to pull out on Wout Van Aert going as fast as he's going on with, without a climb, just basically in a flat road. So he's pulling out about half, a little bit more than half a second a kilometer on Van Aert in the last part of that race, which tells me he paced this thing perfectly. And if you remember, he was a bit trash at the recent European Championships, which were won by Stefan Kung. This was just last week. Everyone's coming out of there saying, oh, Ghana is out of shape. He's no good. He's a bum. He's not going to win. Kung's going to win. Well, if you remember, flashback, this happened right before the Giro d'Italia, Tour de Romandy. Ghana's trash. Ghana's terrible. Ghana's like 10th in the final time trial at Romandy. Flash forward one week later, he's winning. He wins both time trials at the Giro d'Italia. 
Um, Ghana knows how to peak. Ghana does not care about small time trials. He's clearly on some training plan that just has him training. He's probably going into these warm-up races so fatigued from training. He is just training straight through these earlier races. Um, whoever his coach is is very good. He's having him peak. He, she, they is having him peak at exactly the right time. Um, he's coming into these big events. He's going from just a fairly pedestrian time trialist to, I'd say, one of the best ever. To, to hold those average speeds is absolutely insane. I, I cannot overstate how good he is. Um, just as like a pure speed machine, the, the form he can hold, he can get so arrow. He's so big. He's a big, tall guy, which is not, not normal for cycling. And he can hold this incredibly crunched aerodynamic, aerodynamic position while pushing what must be close to 500 watts sustained for close to an hour. Uh, we're talking single-digit people probably in the history of the sport to ever be able to do that. So this is super impressive. Um, I, I mean, Indurain-esque, I'd say. And, it's, and I'm also impressed just with his, with his ability to kind of weather these early blows from Van Aert. You know, they're, you're not racing against each other. It's a time trial, so you're racing separately. But he's, he's probably getting information that telling him he's down. You know, he's not fastest at the first two time checks. And I think part of Van Aert's strategy was you, you kind of rattle them. You cause them to panic. They think, oh, man, I'm down. What, what, what's not going right? I'll start taking more risks in corners. And then you can kind of get people in a hole. Maybe they go through a corner too quickly. Maybe they crash. Maybe they, you know, as Van Aert did, they have a little bobble going through a corner. It throws them off. They slow down. But that, none of that worked. He did not panic being behind Van Aert. He stuck to his game plan. He just reeled him in, pulled him back on that string in that final 10K. And wins the race. And, and there was just seemed to be no urgency in his body language whatsoever. I was really impressed by that. Just how calm, cool, and collected he looked the entire race. Almost, he almost seemed to be just casually churning through the gears. Kind of just loping through these corners. Not taking any big risks. Just being so confident in his ability to pull back the time in the last, last part of that course. At the risk of sounding like a Ghana a Ghanaite. I don't want people to think I have like a weird obsession with Philippe Ghana. I just think he's so underrated as a time trialist. What we're seeing is it, it, it's, it boggles the mind how good he is to average speeds those high. Tony Martin, for, for example, for reference, Tony Martin averaged the same average speed that won him the 2013 World Championships on a similarly flat course. It isn't even close. He's a minute and 18 seconds behind Ghana. And Tony Martin's one of the best of all time. So this performance is just so impressive. I, I really think the sky's the limit for Ghana. He, he can, you know, I think he could, he's not racing Paris-Roubaix, which is insane. I think that's a great race for him. These types of flat classics that take a lot of power. He's one of the only, only riders in the world who can just, he could just simply ride you off his wheel um, on a stretch of cobblestone or just on a regular flat road as we saw. And I believe that was like stage two of Etoile de Bessage earlier this year. Second place, Wout Van Aert. Um, not really a time trialist. This is, this is also super impressive. I, I, can't, I can't overstate how impressive this is. He, he, remember, he won a mountain stage, probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest mountain stage of the Tour de France this year. The Mont Ventoux stage wins it solo, double ascent of Mont Ventoux, wins and wins the final sprint, like the marquee sprint stage of, of the year. And then gets second at the World Time Trial Championships. Uh, what we're seeing, the, versati the versatility with, with Wout Van Aert is, is, is also hard to put into con context and really internalize and understand. I mean, this is 
super impressive. I thought he rode a great race on a course that doesn't even particularly suit him. He's better on a rolling, more difficult course where if there's a few climbs, there's a few more, you know, it's a little bit more technical. He can make up that time to Ghana, but this was Ghana's terrain and he, he, he took it to him. I mean, to, to finish only six seconds back is, is really impressive. Especially considering, I think he's still the favorite for the road race. This shows us that he's in great shape, in incredible shape. Um, he was willing to take risks, which which I was impressed with. Um, he certainly, I mean, I guess he doesn't need, this is his fourth silver medal at a world or Olympic championship. Um, he's never gotten anything but silver at world, so he probably was thinking it's gold or bust. I do not care about lesser placing. So, takeaway from Van Aert. Super impressive, um, almost incomprehensible versatility he's showing, as well as the fact that he's in incredible shape and to, at least my favorite to win the World Road Race Championships. That means he will not win. The favorite never wins. We'll get into that later. Remco Evenepoel in third place is a great result. Remco was, I think he is the most aerodynamic position, natural aerodynamic position I've ever seen on a bike. Uh, I, there's like a little video clip in the, the recent newsletter and he just looks, he looks picture perfect. He looks like he was created in a lab to be aerodynamic on a bike. As I said last week, this is how he, he wins a lot of road races he, on, he can, he can almost replicate this position on a road bike, which means he can get away solo and win road races. Uh, as I said, though, that's the only way he can win road races because he has no sprint whatsoever. So that that's a limiter, but in time trials, um, it is, it is really impressive. I mean, his head is so far below his butt, which sounds weird, but that's how you get incredibly arrow. Um, he just does not have the raw power that Wout Van Aert and Filippo Ghana do. That's normal. That's fine. Who does? I, I mean, Wout and Ghana must be pushing out averages close to sustained 500 Watts for an hour, which is, it's almost impossible to do. So the fact that Remco is even getting this close with what I would say is closer to 400 sustained, maybe 4, 420 for a rider that light, um, it, it is really impressive. Um, one thing, though, I'll flag about Remco, and Remco also in great shape, um, should be considered at least dangerous for the, the, the road race coming up. And he, loses, he lost his water bottle early in the race, so he did this entire thing without any water or uh, whatever type of isotonic mix they might have in there. That hurts you on two levels because drinking, drinking water helps. Who knew? But also you get an aerodynamic advantage from the bottle being in there. Um, probably, obviously, that's not going to make up 44 seconds, but um, he held off Casper Askren by two seconds. If he loses that podium position, you could say that is due to, that would have been due to him losing the bottle. Uh, he's 21 years old. He gets his second world championship time trial medal. Uh, that, those, those are the positives. Uh, but also, if we pull back, Kind of a concerning trend here. Uh, Remco got second at the 2019 World Time Trial Championships. So technically, this is a regression. Like this is not, I've seen people, I've heard in the cycling podcast say this was the ride of the day. Um, I, no, I would say literally the ride of the day is probably the person who wins the race. Um, it's totally crazy to say this is, how would you say this is the ride of the day? But this is a regression. I mean, I, I don't want to say this, this could sound like nitpicking, but it also, I think is a slightly concerning trend that we should keep an eye on. Evanipol's biggest win in his career was in 2019. It's the classic of San Sebastian. Pretty big win. That's not crazy. That's not a monument. That's not a grand tour stage. He's never matched that. Uh, that, that is something to keep an eye on. He does not win 
much, and he does not win big races. Yet he is talked about as though he is a star of the sport, as, a, as though he is a Matthew Vanderpoel, Wout Van Aert, Tadej Bogacar. Um, just stats do not bear that out, you know, but by any stretch of the imagination. And the fact that he's sliding backwards is really concerning. People assume progression is linear. This, is, this happens in, um, in politics, in life, and, and specifically in sports. It's not. Just because you get second at 19 does not mean you'll be winning at 21, as we just saw. And just because you're third at 21 does not mean you'll be winning at 24. You know, it's, you can be very good at a young age, but there's also people out there. Casper Askren has just been improving all the time. Wout Van Aert has been improving. Philippe Ogana finished behind Remco Evenepoel at the 2019 World Time Trial Championships. You no, know, by, I believe, like over a minute or 46 seconds behind Remco Evenepoel. Now he's crushing Remco Evenepoel by 44 seconds. So that is definitely something to keep an eye on. If Remco does not keep progressing, I mean, A, if he stays as good as he is forever, that's, that's great. That's a pretty good career. The problem is, the problem becomes the media pressure is so intense and the expectations are so high, it would be a massive disappointment if he never got any better. And honestly, the, the facts we have before us is that he's not getting better. He is not progressing. The, and the biggest thing for me is he's not progressing in his race craft. He does not, even Matthew Vanderpool, who I consider one of the worst racers in the professional sport, he's terrible at race craft, is getting better. He is getting slightly better every race, every year. Remco is not. I do not see a progression here where he's reading races better. His race awareness is getting better. And he frankly doesn't have the talent and the power just to just to be a time trialist. You know, a lot of a lot of bad racers. I mean, Fabian Cancellara, not 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 the best at reading a race. The guy had, had an amazing career, but it, because he because he had so much power, he could win a win any time trial he wanted to, and then b just ride people off his wheel in road race. Rimko cannot do that. He does not have the power of a Cancellara, Ragana, or a Van Aert, which means he has to be smarter than. The other stars. He currently isn't. And I, I worry he's going to run. He doesn't have, he might be young. He's only 21. He doesn't have a lot of runway here, is the problem. If he's not better in two years, it, the immediate scrutiny is going to be so intense, it could, it could almost implode his career. Um, you saw this, you know, a mild version of this with Taylor Finney, where even before the accident, there was maybe some slight grumblings of underperformance, and the media pressure was so intense in the U.S. that I felt like it was kind of crumbling his career. And Remco is that times a million. So he's, he's definitely the most scrutinized rider in Belgium, which is a really intense cycling media environment to begin with. So this is concerning to me. He has been picked by cycling media as the star, the the. The, this, the prince that was promised. Um, I just, he's just not the type of rider who's going to win prolifically. He's can win, ama- he can put out amazing performances and, and win, you know, the rare big race. He, I think he could be a one, maybe two time world champion. He's not Wout Van Aert. He's not going to win, you know, a sprint stage, a time trial stage, a mountain stage of the Tour de France. That's just not who he is. So uh, just something to keep an eye on there. I, I thought, I thought the narrative was very interesting. The fact that it was like, wow, can you believe this 21-year-old gets third at the World Championships? It was like, yeah, I can believe it because he got second at 19. If anything, this is a regression. So what are we talking about here? Um, but having said that, he's going to go into the road race extremely fit. I do worry about his ability to read the race. I worry about his ability to work with Bob Van Aert. But we will see how that goes.
Um, Casper Askren, great, great ride. Um, Got to be devastating to miss that podium, but this is huge for him. For a rider that won a monument earlier in the year, um, who is not, I would not say, one of the world's elite time trialists. I mean, that seems silly. He got fourth at Worlds. Of course, he's an elite time trialist. But this is, I would say this is maybe his best time trial result ever. So very good result from him. Um, The average speeds were insane. I mean, this is, this I think shows, we won't, I mean, obviously you could say doping, whatever, but I mean, there was a lot, there's been a lot of doping in the sport in the past, and we've not seen average speeds this high. Just, just to put this into perspective, George Simpson broke the U.S., the, the American 40 kilometer time trial record. He covered 40 kilometers in, I believe, 45 minutes. This was just a few weeks ago in New Mexico on the Moriarty time trial course, considered to be the fastest time trial course in the world because of the altitude, the wind, and like the straight nature of the road. Ghana and Van Art in the thick, muggy air of Flanders. This air is so slow, hard to overestimate, hard to overstate how slow this air is. They go 43 kilometers, so three kilometers further in just two minutes more. So they're, they're traveling at a faster speed than George Simpson is in absolute perfect conditions when he sets that record. Um, that's really stunning. I don't think I've ever seen average speed. I haven't gone through every time trial at the world tour level, but I've never seen average speeds like this for such a sustained, the 43 kilometers is a long time trial. You rarely get time trials that long. So, um, this is shows, I think the talent, two things, the talent we're seeing in time trialing is, is at the level we haven't seen for a long, long time. Um, the bikes are the bikes are fast, but there's so many restrictions on what you can do with a bike. These are not the fastest time trial bikes ever made, not by a long shot. I mean, the Lotus bikes that they were riding in the 90s were, were faster, uh, more, technolo- more technologically advanced than the bikes we're seeing now. I think the big thing, though, is these front ends are crazy. These, these custom handlebars that they're making. If you remember, you know, Armstrong used to be like crunched. He would have a tiny head tube, and then they would slam the stem as far as it would go. And he, it looked like he could not breathe on the bike. And I would not be surprised if that was actually slowing them down. They just didn't. This was even like 10, 15 years ago. They didn't quite understand the trade-off between an aerodynamic benefit and breathing and producing power. They're lifting these guys up so high in these new positions. Like the stack on the front ends on these bikes are, are so high. The stack height is, is really staggering. I try to put like a, a little video of... Uh, of Ghana's handlebars in there. And it is, I mean, his hands are, must be a foot above the, the stem of the bike. Um, and the reason they can do this is uh, these are super expensive, custom made. Some of them are carbon fiber. I think some of them are 3D printed titanium and, and they're made custom for each rider. A lot of them are even asymmetrical um, relative to, I, I guess they figure some riders it's better for them to have an asymmetrical handlebar for however their their body their ergonomics are and their ergonomic needs are but this is somewhat controversial because you're not supposed to be riding custom components you're supposed to everything you ride is supposed to be commercially available they get around this by they'll offer to make you if you want to you can buy the custom handlebars for a lot of money like three thousand dollars They'll make them for you. I guess that satisfies the, the UCI's rule on that. It's awesome to see them going this fast, and it's cool to see um, cutting edge tech like that. But it is taking some of the some riders out. Like Ryan Mullins, Ryan Mullen, 
Nz, maybe just Marian Mullen on Trek. Great, great time trialist. He's never going to be able to go this fast because Trek is not going to pay to have his handlebars made, which makes it uh, a, a little bit of a pay, pay to play situation, which is not great. What I find interesting though is kind of this despecialization that's happening where you see like Stefan Bissinger, Stefan Kung, these guys are, are, are time trial specialists and they're just getting crushed by riders who are certainly not specialists. I mean, you, you could argue Philippe Pagan is a specialist. You could make that argument, but he wins races that are not time trials, big races, big, big world tour races. Wout Van Aert, certainly not a specialist. I would say Remco Evenepoel, also not a specialist. Um, this is kind of a larger trend in the sport where you have great riders that are just winning everything. Um, Tadej Pogacar won Liège Best on Liège this year and then won the Tour de France. That is super unusual. That is not, Grand Tour winners are usually not winning one-day races. You see, saw the same thing with Primoz Roglic last year, won Liège and won the Vuelta. Um, you could even see this World Championships. Tadej Pogacar could win this World Championships after winning the Tour de France. Um, we haven't seen that really since the days of like Le Mans and Hino in the 80s. Uh, I just find it so fascinating that we had years and years where everyone was getting so specialized. You would either do a grand tour, one day races, or time trials. You would never mix and match. And now we're just seeing it's all merged together into one thing, which is great for the sport. I think this is, the, this is what's exciting about cycling. This is all positive. Um, perhaps I, I don't quite know what it stems from though. What is the reason for this? Is it just great? These, these riders are so talented. They can do anything. Was that all a mistake to specialize before? Was it just kind of a like dumb coach logic before? And it actually was not scientifically tested that you needed to pick one thing to be good at. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it was really on display at this time trial championships. I, I was really shocked with how well um, these kind of well-rounded riders did and how poorly the specialists did. Um, Ethan Hader in eighth place, super impressive. Um, I'd never heard of this guy before the Tour of Britain, 23-year-old British rider. I think he solves a lot, potentially solves a lot of Enios's problems. They're in a contract dispute with Garrett Thomas at the moment. He wants a ton of money, probably wants a couple million euros to come back and race. And now they have Ethan Hader and they say, wait a second, we have a pretty strong time-trialing British rider who can pretty much do everything. He's a pretty good sprinter, pretty good climber, pretty good time-trialist. What do we need Garrett Thomas for? Um, he's not, probably not going to win the Tour de France ever. Certainly not going to win it soon, but he's a good rider. You know, he could win big races. Um, I think this is, is going to push Ineos over the edge to maybe cut Garrett Thomas loose. And just go forth with the, the new stars. I think they need they need to cycle out the older riders. They have a lot of uh, I don't want to call them ghosts because they're not dead. But the the Garrett Thomas thing is not that's not helping. The fact that he's just kind of hanging around the team and he won a tour fairly recently. If you're not going to have him as a leader, you can't have him on a team. It's actually a big misconception that. Former winners make good domestiques or they can offer guidance to younger riders. First of all, the younger guys don't give a hoot about the old guys. Um, I can tell you this as an old guy, no one cares. Like kids do not care about your former exploits. I guarantee you the young riders on Enios do not give a crap about Garrett Thomas winning the Tour de France to what us seems like very a very short time ago to them feels like an eternity ago. Also, former winners rarely, if ever, are able to slot into a domestique role. If you start going through 
past tour winners, you actually, I, I have a hard time finding any that ever worked for anyone else later in their career. Um, I'm not saying that like Cadell Evans never helped a teammate ever, but they do not slot into super domestique roles at the tour. Bradley Wiggins certainly did not. That, that was a disaster. They tried it. It didn't work. They just stopped. They, they told him they weren't going to bring him to Grand Tours because they knew it was going to be too incendiary to have him on a, on a Grand Tour team having been, been a former Tour de France winner. Miguel Indurain just literally got off his bike the moment he saw that he wasn't going to win the Vuelta Espana for the first time like in his life. He just literally got off and went home and never raced again. Uh, Greg LeMond certainly was not able to, to transition to that. Bernard Hinault famously was not able to transition into a helper role. This just, it just did not happened. So they, they need to get rid of Garrett Thomas ASAP, in my opinion. I think in their opinion as well, I think Ethan Hader is going to give them the confidence to kind of make that split and think we're not actually going to lose anything here because we have this guy buried on our own roster who's kind of a budding British star. One thing I wanted to touch on from the women's time trial is Ellen van Dijk won the event ahead of Marlene Rousset of Switzerland and at her own uh, country woman teammate, Annemiek van Vluten in third. Uh, these are, again, really close margins. She wins by 10 seconds, and then Van Vluten's in third at 24 seconds. Really close margins. Tight margins for, for World Championship time trials. Van Dyke has won the event before. Back in 2013, she won the World Championships, but this is a big win for her. She's been runner-up, third place, fourth place a lot since then. Kind of playing second and third fiddle to her own country teammate, her own national teammates, Annabeek uh, Van Vluten and Evander Bregan are two of the best of all time. So it's just kind of unfortunate that she's been buried behind them. I think it's super interesting she wins this. She also won the European Road Race Championships last weekend. Uh, I, I would have her pegged as an outside shot at winning the world. I would not be shocked if she won the World Road Race Championships. Um, she's clearly stronger than Van Vluten at the moment. I don't know how that's going to work, how the politics of that are going to work inside the Dutch team. We saw that they did not work well together at all at the Olympics, and that blew up spectacularly in their face. And we had Sarah Gigante on to confirm that it was not because of lack of communication. They knew there was, the, the Peloton knew there was riders at the front, and they knew how far they were up the front and how many of them there were. They just refused to work together, and it cost them the race. That could easily happen again this time. But Van Dyke, super interesting pick there, though. If you're looking for outside value picks for the win at Worlds, she would be the one I'm looking at. She is clearly super fit right now. And I will say, will not be, I would not think would be marked the way the other favorites would be. And one other thing I wanted to touch on before we talk about the road race is the Primus Classic on Saturday was won by Florian Seneschel. It was a super interesting race, had a stacked field. There was Julian Alaphilippe, Matthew Vanderpool, Jesper Stuyven, a lot of riders that are going to be at Worlds and will be favorites at Worlds. Um, the sample was almost ruined by the fact that Dakota Quickstep was so strong. They had five riders in the top 10, which is completely insane. I, you rarely see domination from a team like that, but they just took control of the front of the race and pretty much just rode Van, Van, Vanderpool out of contention. There was nothing he could do at that point other than ride off solo and win. But what was so interesting is just Florence Seneschel. So the, the big thing about Worlds is there's it's trade, it's national teams, not trade teams. So Tacona Quickstep's going to get broken up into multiple teams. I mean, the winner of the race, Florian Seneschal's French, Julien Alaphilippe, he's French. A lot of the other riders are Belgian, um, but Belgium's going to have their own thing going on, which we'll get into in a second. But this France team, I, I would 
they're they're kind of my dark horse pick. Uh, obviously, kind of crazy to call them a dark horse pick since they have the defending world champion in the ranks, Julien Alaphilippe. But someone like Florian Seneschal, exactly how he won the Primus Classic, could spoil the could spoil the race at, at Worlds and win. Um, France is going to have a few decent options. I I was really really impressed with how with how strong France was. And also, one other major takeaway from that race is I don't know how to say this guy's name. I don't want to butcher it, but Mikael Forlach Onre. He's a Danish rider on Dakota Quickstep. He was in the front group with Florian Seneschel, finishes in fourth place. And he's just, he's a small bit player on that Danish team, which is really interesting. I mean, I think, I think Denmark has the strongest team at this world championships. They have so many cards to play and I, they do not have the pressure that a team like Belgium, another super strong team like Belgium has on them. And all these guys are pretty, the, the big thing I like about Denmark is they're all pretty, at least at least publicly, quite humble. I mean, you have Michael Vogren, who just won two one-day races in a row in consecutive days, so he's clearly in great shape. Magnus Court, Mads Pedersen, who won, who won the race in 2019. Casper Askren, who won Flanders earlier this year. This is a very similar race to Flanders. Got fourth of the time trial, so we, so we know he's super fit. Andreas Krohn, Mikael Berg, just as helpers. I assume they're not there for their own ambitions. And then you have Honore, who nearly wins a race against some of the best riders in the world. And if you remember, he was in the front group at San Sebastian earlier this year. And he's just, he's a nobody on that team. I don't mean that as a, as an insult, but no one is looking at him as a contender to win this race. He, and he could do it. He's that strong. So Denmark is in, is in a very, very good position. But one thing, I'll just go over the, the world championships road race really quick. And then I'll talk about the problem for Denmark and other strong teams. Um, World, so Worlds is from Antwerp to Leuven. Uh, it has two big circuits. It's of a hard race. It's in Flanders. There's lots of there's there's no big climbs, but a lot of hills. Almost if you look at the profile, it looks like a shark's tooth. It is just constant up and down. There's two big circuits. They go and do a big circuit out over some larger climbs. They come back into Leuven, do a circuit. They go back out in the country, do some more circuits. Go back into Leuven for a final circuit. It finishes on a like a one kilometer climb, um, AK perfect for Wout Van Aert, almost unbeatable for Wout, Wout Van Aert. If things go right, is almost unbeatable on this course. The big problem, and this is a long course. I mean, this is gonna be a hard race. It's a 268 kilometer race. So this is one of the longest. It's shorter than Milan San Remo, slightly longer than the Tour of Flanders. This is probably the second longest race of the year. It's gonna be absolutely brutal. Um, the World Championships is always super selective. The great thing about it is it's usually the strongest rider that wins, and this is going to be no different. The thing about and the thing about Worlds is it's so interesting when the trade teams get all mixed up. You're taking the strongest riders in the world, the strongest teams in the world, and just totally mixing them up and reassigning them somewhat randomly from the country they're from. The problem is that this causes like intense chaos because you have riders working against their trade teammates, but you know secretly under the table. If you help your trade teammate win, they're going to get a big, big fat check from your trade team, and they'll probably split it with you. They'll spiff, they'll spiff you out, as they say in the industry. The thing, and we've seen this happen. I believe that was the 2013 World Championships in Florence, where Valverde was on the same was on Movistar with Rui Costa and basically rode him 
helped him win, refused to work with Rojas, who got, they got second and third, total disaster, refused to work together. Um, this is common. This is more common than people think. Um, we even saw at the Olympics where Tare Pogacar was not chasing back Brandon McNulty and Richard Carapaz's Ineos' teammates back in the chase group were also not working to chase him down. This is, it's super normal. I mean, you race with people for what, 363 days out of the year. You're not just going to completely change allegiances just for one race, uh, especially when there's a lot of money on the line. Um, also, these teams are not used to working together. Um, like Belgium, strong team. There's a lot of rivalries in there. I mean, Wout Venar and Bremco Evenepoel, I assume, do not get along. They're not on the same team. They're big rivals normally, all the time. A lot of these Belgium, this, is, this plagues big teams or teams with a lot of strong riders like Belgium and Italy always seem to have quite a bit of infighting and they're just not all on the same page. I mean, and why would they be? If Remco Evenepoel thinks he's the strongest rider in the race, why is he going to work for Wout Van Aert to help him win? The incentives are really, really tricky here. This is a tough needle to thread if you're a national team coach and if you're a star on a national team with another star. It must be incredibly difficult. Teams do not work that well together. This also makes the race incredible because you have these, these courses that are similar to the big monument one-day classics we see, but without the control provided by trade teams. So it, it's like, uh, and, and there's no uh, communication tools. So there's no race radios. So a lot of times riders aren't quite sure what's going on, who's up the road, what's happening. It's all combines to make the race a lot more exciting. It also can hurt you to have a strong team. Peter Sagan won three consecutive world championships with basically, I actually think for a few of those world championships, the only teammate he had was his brother, Yuri Sagan. I think for one other, they, I think maybe they had three riders at one point. But these small, these super small teams can, can, can actually help you to come from a really small team. Because what's going to happen is a strong break could get up the road and everyone's going to look at Denmark and say, you guys want to do something about this? Or they're going to look at Belgium and say, well, it's time for you to do something. And Belgium might not work. I mean, this is exactly what happened at the women's Olympic road race. This could very well happen again. And then what happens if you're on a small team? If you're Peter Sagan and you only have your brother at the race, no one's going to look at you to work. You can sit in. The goal of the world championships is don't be seen on TV until about 400 meters left in the race. I mean, that is, I've been watching international racing for a long time, and that's the, the, the main predictor of who's going to win. If you're seeing someone early, if you're seeing someone I mean, 30K from the line, they're not going to win. Um, we remember this from you know, Richmond World Championships in 2015. Tom Boonen's out there looking super impressive with these attacks, 20, 30K to go. You don't even see Peter Sagan until he attacks with about uh, two kilometers, a kilometer to go. That's how you win. Same thing when Peter Sagan won in Qatar. Same thing when Peter Sagan won in uh, Bergen in Norway. He was, he was invisible the entire race. And that's how you win. That's exactly what you, what you want. Um, and, and this is why it's really hard for favorites because everyone's going to be looking at them. I mean, Belgium's really going to have their work cut out for them. I believe Matthew Vanderpool's racing, which means the Dutch are really going to have their work cut out for them too, because who in their right mind is going to work for Wout Van Aert or Matthew Vanderpool? Who would ever want to take those guys to a line on an FL sprint? It's going to get incredibly difficult for them. That's why I, I, I really am curious about, there's two teams that I really like, um, Slovenia and France. Crazy, Obviously crazy to say France isn't favored because it's an uphill finish and they have the defending world champion. The thing is, 
Alaphilippe has not been winning very much. Over the past two years, he has six total wins. That's not a ton for him. I think maybe he potentially only has one victory over the last two years against Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert on uphill finishes, and that was at the Bronze Chappelle race. If you remember, I think he won by, it was like a photo finish when he beat Matthew Vanderpool. This was in 2020. Long story short, he is, does not have a good record against Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert, period, and also on uphill finishes. He just got smoked on a really difficult summit finish at the Tour of Britain by Wout Van Aert. He's not going to be, I cannot imagine that his French team is going to work to pull those guys together. They're going to, if they're smart, they're going to use strong riders like Florian Seneschal, Christophe Laporte, to really try to make the race as weird as possible, maybe get those guys up the road in a move that could stay away. Um, don't help at all. They, they should not be pulling at, at any point in the race if they're with Vanderpool and Van Aert. Um, also, Slovenia, super strong team. They have their tiny nation, 2 million people. They have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight riders at this race. So they have the maximum team size. Um, and all these guys, the thing I really like about Slovenia, yes, they have big personalities, big stars, Primoz Roglic, Tadej Pogacar, two of the biggest stars in the sport. They, they don't really have inter, inter country, intra country rivalries, though, like these other, like Belgium or Holland have. I wonder, though, I, yeah, I'm not sure what that is. I wonder if the media landscape is just different in Slovenia. There's less of a build them up and tear them down culture. So everyone's just kind of celebrated as awesome. You know, it's like if you're from a country that small and you have multiple stars on the international level, you're probably just hyped for them. And that's kind of what seems to be the vibe around the Slovenia team. I mean, you have Mate Motoric, who is one of the best riders in the world, and no one's even talking about him. He's completely invisible. And, you know, I think that the big strength Slovenia have is Pogaccia and Roglic know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. They know when they're not strong. We saw them race pretty well together at the Olympics because of this, where Roglic was not telling Tadej Pogacar, you have to work for me. I feel great. And then got dropped. You know, he just. He just got dropped pretty, you know, not, not far from the finish, but like 45K from the finish, if I remember, um, and, and worked pretty well with Pagacha during that race. Um, I, th- I, th- I think, I cannot imagine he's going to be feeling that good, but I wouldn't totally rule him out. Um, I, I don't quite know what he's been up to since he won the Vuelta España. He will have some, I mean, he will have a lot of residual fitness from the Vuelta, the Vuelta is a great preparation for the Worlds. It used to be more common. It used to almost be mandatory to race the Vuelta to win the Worlds. In the past few years, it has drifted away from that, though. It has drifted away from that, but there is still a big correlation between doing the Vuelta and winning the World Championships. Um, you just get such a good block of fitness racing for three weeks. You can almost do nothing in between and be in great shape. Pogacar, I do not, he's not in bad shape, but he's not in his tip-top form. I, I, I would not pick him to win, but I do love, I, I, I cannot state how much I like Mate Motoric as the upset winner here. The thing is, it will be hard for him. If there's a group, there's a small group that comes to the line, it's hard to imagine him winning an uphill sprint. Um, I think he would ha- have to slip off the front before they get to the finish. That's kind of what brings me back to Italy, another team I really like. They have a lot of strong riders. Gianni Moscon, you might not like, you might, you probably don't like him. Um, big, big piece of crap as a person, but great racer. He's, and he's riding incredibly well right now. And they have Sonny Cabrelli, who could win out of a group on an uphill finish if, they, if anyone brings him to a small 
to a small sprint finish. Uh, he will not be looked at as you know as as heavily as Vanderpool and Van Art by the other riders in the race. He could really, really upset some of the favorites here. You know, in my opinion, right now, he won the European Rudder Race Championships. He is one of the strongest riders in this race. Um, does not have the raw strength that Wout Van Art does. But Wout Van Aert is going to have his work cut out for him. At World Championships, it is incredibly difficult for the favorite to win. Um, I would say more difficult than at a, a major trade team race, like a major professional race that you would see throughout the year because you don't have a well-drilled team to kind of deal with the regular scrutiny. It's incredibly difficult for these guys to even, to even get their own team on the same page you know, as, as them. And then he's just going to get marked. I, I can't imagine anyone's going to work with him. No one's going to help him get to the line. People will just attack him. People will gang up on him. We saw this for years and years and years with um, Fabian Cancellar, who I believe never won a world championship road race for this exact same reason, even though he was incredibly strong and at times the strongest rider in the race. So my, my big takeaways from this are it's going to be an awesome race. I highly recommend getting up early to watch it on Sunday. The heavy favorites, don't expect the heavy favorites to win. Um, don't expect Vanderpool, Van Aert to win. Look for the slightly asymmetric favorites like Matty Motorich, Sonny Cabrelli, um, Magnus Court. I, I really like Magnus Court, especially because he did the Vuelta. Um, he's de- he has great fitness. Michael Valgren, probably a little too on the nose, right? Like a rider like that who just won two races. Um, and this would be this would be the the case against Cabrelli. Um, you wonder, well, has he peaked a, a week too soon? You know, if he was that fit at the Italian one day races, that kind of string of Italian one day races we just had, how fit is he really going to be here? Um, yeah, that that would be the case against Cabrelli as well. But long story short, don't don't try to predict the worlds. It's it's a fool's a fool's errand. Um, I've got a little bit. I saw Wout Van Aert was available for decent odds. I put some money on him. You don't want to feel like an idiot if Van Aert wins because it will have been the obvious pick. But that's it for this week. We I will have I'll probably have a separate show after the worlds on the men's and the women's race. I'm gonna have Sarah Giganti come on and help me break down the women's race. So I'll be talking to you next week. Have a great weekend of watching these amazing races we're gonna have before us and talk to you soon. Bye.